Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. Nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and I have a really fun uh, episode for you this week. And when I say fun, I mean fun to me, which means because I'm a dork, because I'm a nerd, it means that uh, it is interesting, or at least I think it's interesting. Now, hopefully you think it's interesting, too, but it's going to be a little bit of a different format because when, you know, whenever I go through like the uh, preparation of the dish for the week, it's not, it's not necessarily part of, of the format of the show, but it does sneak in there a lot in that a lot of times I'll, I'll point out that, hey, this recipe is, is a process or a, is a, is a method recipe, you know, recipe. It's like the, the ingredients are not particularly unique, but we're going to do these very specific steps to transform them into something else, right? Um, let me think something like, uh, or, you know, think about when you make um, homemade mayonnaise, right? The ingredients are, they're ubiquitous, they're boring. It's like oil, eggs, salt, and, and acid, you know, maybe lemon juice or vinegar or whatever. But the way that you put them together <laughs> causes it to transform into something else, right? Something recognizable, a condiment, a whatever, mayonnaise. Whereas in other instances, the recipe is really ingredient dependent. Think back to like, I think it was uh, episode number two. It was the ostrich egg quiche. Clearly that recipe hinges on the ostrich egg. <laughs> you know, not many people uh, cook with ostrich eggs on a regular basis. So the fact that this quiche is made out of one huge ostrich egg is what differentiates it from other things. Similarly, you know, there's like a third category of dishes. Let me think like um, the uh, Lomo Adobado would be one, you know, a, a dish that comes out of a specific area and is tied to a particular culture or a, a time period or even like a situation. You know, for example, during World War II in England, you had very widespread rationing of things like um, meat in general, but then specific types of meats like bacon or pork or whatever. And that rationing led to people being creative in how they're stretching the food that they have available to them. So things like sausages would you know, normally be made with pork and spices and whatever. And they started adding rusk to that rusk, R-U-S-K, which is basically like, a think about like the, the British version of panko, panko breadcrumbs, the rusk as a filler and then using um, a lot of water to build up the, the, you know, the mass of the sausage. So you, you take a smaller amount of pork, um, add some rusk, add some water, mix it all, you know, grind it, mix it together until you have a solid enough farce to stuff into these sausages. And then you get more sausages than what you would if you didn't adulterate the sausage with, with bread and water. The uh, side effect of that, though, is that there's a higher water content in those sausages so when you cook them in the pan and that water you know changes to steam and expands if the casings are tightly wound on there 
they can explode in the pan. And that gives you, you know, the nickname for British sausages, which are bangers. So, you know, something that is as British as tea <laughs> or as, uh, you know, a uh, uh, clotted cream or in strawberries or something like that. Uh, the British banger is the result, is the product of World War II rationing and people, you know, shucking and jiving with the food landscape at the time. So those those types of dishes that really speak to historical significance or cultural significance or something like that, really interesting to me. And that is sort of what this episode is about because the ingredients, super simple. Uh, the process, the methodology, also super simple. And the result is something that's like, I guarantee, I guarantee the vast majority of the people listening to this episode a have never heard of this food product um, and b certainly probably has never tasted it before despite the fact that it is made of nothing out of the ordinary right and the dish that we're making today is near and dear to my heart i've been making this down here on the homestead ever since we quote unquote processed our first pigs years and years and years ago and it's called tonno di miale. It's an Italian dish. Um, the, the, the translation from Italian to English is straight up tuna pork, right? And that's the reason why we call it tonno di miale, because uh, sometimes having a, an Italian name for a food or a French name for a food or something like that sounds very exotic and romantic. Whereas if you just said what it is, be like, oh, this is uh, tuna pork. That just sounds gross to me anyway. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it reminds you of like um, the old tropes of, you know, in the, the school lunchroom of tuna surprise. It's like, oh God, what is the surprise, you know? But no, Tano de Miale, tuna pork, it is uh, the tuna of the forest. <laughs> you know, if bumblebee tuna can be chicken of the sea, Tano de Miale can be tuna of the forest. So why... Before we get into how we make it or what it is, why does it exist? Why? And this will make sense to you as we sort of um, go through a couple different variables here. Think about, think about the country of Italy as it exists today. You can imagine it in your mind's eye. It is a boot-shaped peninsula in the Mediterranean Sea, right? Lots of coastline. I mean, it's a peninsula, so a landmass surrounded by water on three sides with all kinds of concave and convex, those are probably not the right words for it, um, uh, coastlines, meaning you have lots of access to the Mediterranean. So in southern Italy, um, and in like the, I don't even know if they call them the Italian islands, but you know, things like Sicily. Sicily is an island, southern Italy. Very close, but you know, I don't think there's an isthmus that connects them. But uh, Sicily naturally is going to have a very rich seafood culture by virtue of being essentially in the sea. You know, you go north to like Palermo and uh, even like places like Corsica and uh, places along the southern coast of Italy. You have access to a lot of seafood, so you have a rich seafood culinary culture there and tuna fishing was a big deal 
up until the early 1900s, it was uh, pretty regular and and robust. There's that word again, um, and it has died off significantly since then. But uh, you would you would fish for tuna between I believe it was between like July and October. Don't uh, hold me to that one, but I do believe that is the tuna season in the Mediterranean. And the way, as I understand it, the way that tuna would be fished is that uh, all the yeah, young virile men would go out into the sea in their rowboats with these huge nets. And the nets, they're not nets that you would like uh, cast out into the water and then scoop up your quarry. They would be nets that would be hanging in the water in like parallel lines, creating what are essentially corridors underwater. And then you would have people, for lack of a better word, herding tuna into these corridors. And as as the fish run through the corridor and, and the and the uh, the nets narrow, you know, as they progress, the fish come up closer to the surface, and there are men in rowboats waiting for them with hooks and oars and clubs and spears and whatever else, and it's just a massacre, just whacking fish, stabbing them, hooking them, launching them into the boat, whatever. Lots of fish would be taken all at once, and you would have you know this this abundance of tuna available all throughout southern Italy. That method of capturing live animals, essentially, or converting live animals to uh, food products uh, by killing them is it's really it's it's an extremely human way of procuring meat. i I believe there's a an archaeological site in eastern africa possibly kenya or tanzania somewhere over there with a natural rock outcropping that forms sort of this uh converging corridor and there's evidence that hundreds of thousands of years ago early humans would chase their game animals whether antelope or wildebeest or whatever into this converging corridor and uh they would have a a hunting party waiting at the other end to execute the animals as they as they kind of all bunch up at the end. Um, in North America, there's that uh, that site in uh, Montana or Wyoming or something. I can't remember what it's called. It's called like like bison with its head smashed in or something like that, where it's basically a cliff that Native Americans would drive bison off the edge of the cliff and then collect hides and meat and organs or whatever um, from the bottom there. So this whole, this whole way of forcing a bunch of animals into a narrow kill box is, uh, is a tale as old as time, and it certainly uh, was employed in the Mediterranean for, for tuna. So, but, but the result of that, the result of that is that you would have a lot of tuna available. You know, people would eat tuna all the time. It was it was uh, it was plentiful. It was high quality protein. However, however, not all of Italy is this southern uh, Mediterranean uh, exposed to the sea type of uh, situation. In northern Italy, you know, you're in the foothills of the Alpine mountains. Uh, you know, you have you have the Alps up there. You have the uh, the Pyrenean Mountains to the uh, I guess that'd be to the west. Um, the Extremadura Plain in on the, on the Iberian Peninsula in, in Spain. It's kind of this whole thing from goes from plains to mountains to foothills 
and then you go inland into the Balkans and whatnot. But up there, you know, in Tuscany and so on and so forth, not a whole lot of tuna, right? Because there's not a whole lot of sea. So uh, what do you have instead? You have some of the greatest pigs in the history of the world being farmed on homesteads and and farms and plantations or whatever you call them. I don't know. Now, certainly they're not the Paternegra, you know, the black-footed Iberian pigs that are the forebearers of the Asaba Island pigs, which are my my personal favorite breed of pig ever. This is what, you know, the, the pigs would be dropped off along barrier islands along the eastern seaboard of the United States from you know early explorers. And these were the seeds of conquest because then the conquistadors that would come afterwards like after you have the coastline mapped and after you have sort of a rough census of like oh well there's some there's some people there you know they seem kind of friendly but i don't know or whenever you would send the soldiers to actually forcibly take the land in order to afford quote unquote more uh soldiers more armaments maybe some more horses all that kind of stuff you know you would drop these sheep and goats and pigs off unpredictable uh, points along the route so that subsequent voyages could bring more of the steel, more of the gunpowder, more of the beasts of burden as opposed to, as opposed to uh, livestock. And they would just stop at the same places along the way. And uh, you know these islands would basically become the larder for soldiers because you'd have uh, predictable livestock available to consume. And on the uh, island, uh, Osaba Island off the coast of Georgia, some of those pigs managed to uh, manage to uh, have a sustainable breeding population into the present day. So what you have is Osaba Island pigs are a direct genetic descendant of those black-footed Iberian pigs from Spain. Those pigs would have been very closely related to the pigs in northern Italy and southern France and, you know, in, in throughout Europe, Germany, etc. So because you have so many pigs available and not so much tuna available, what you can do is you can kind of mock up some, some uh, what would you call it, uh, like a, a collab, right? You know, you're like, hey, we're going we're gonna to take this pig and we're going to make it taste a lot like tuna because we're missing out on what those guys have down in the South, right? And, you know, you, yeah, what is it? Uh, Hydrox. Hydrox was the original chocolate cookie with a cream center. And Oreo was the uh, well-funded upstart that was going to take the idea and use the power of marketing to grow its market share. So today, Oreo is the premier brand and Hydrox seems like it's this knockoff imitation thing, whereas in fact, Hydrox is the original. Well, Tano di Miale is essentially the Oreo. It is knocking off uh, Tuda, but it's doing so so effectively that it is, uh, I would say that I prefer this to actual Tuda, right? If you give me a choice, do you want Tano di Miale or do you want Tuda? I'm going to take the Tano every time. Okay. So what is it? God, Bob, you've been talking about, you've been talking about Spanish conquistadors and pigs in Georgia and, you know, guys in boats beating fish to death with an oar. What is the point? What are we talking about here? All right. Tano Demiale. What we're going to do with this is we are going to process some really tough, gnarly, borderline inedible pork and we're going to turn it into something that is absolutely delightful, charming, 
spectacular, flavorful, light, satisfying. It's all the great words. I'm just, it, it's stream of consciousness at this point. All right, so what we're going to use, we're going to use shank meat. This is like the, um, think about like the forearm and the calves of the, of the pig. The lower leg. Now you think about what a pig is. It's an understory omnivore, right? The natural mm, setting, the natural habitat environment for a pig to really thrive in is in uh, a forest or in the in the in the in the point in which a forest kind of bleeds into a pasture. That's where pigs are the happiest. Uh, if there's some hills, if there's a lot of sod and, and, and ground cover to turn over and root through, if there's acorns that have been dropped and buried by leaf litter and they're fermenting under there, that's even better. But pigs are always moving and working and digging close to the ground. They're exceptionally strong. But every step that a pig takes in its life is making the muscles in its lower arms and its lower legs I mean, I'm anthropomorphizing them a little bit by saying arms and legs, but you know what I mean. You have two legs in the front, two legs in the back. <laughs> Once you get below the elbow or the knee, that's the part of the that's the part of the pig leg that I'm talking about, whether it's the foreleg or the hind leg. Now, I used hind legs, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you don't have to you don't have to be choosy about which set of legs you're using here. But every step that they take is is working those muscle fibers. It's squeezing, it's, it's um, extending and shortening the muscles. It's driving blood and myoglobin and all of the, you know, all the, the liquids that, that keep the muscles healthy and transport oxygen and nutrients, you know, to and from. The whole, the whole machine of the pig is being employed with every step that it takes uh, during its life. And what that does is that creates very dense and strong uh, biological material. And what I mean by that, that can be tendons, that can be bone, that can be skin, that can be muscle, that can be fat, that can be all those things. And all those things are present in this part of the pig leg. So no one ever buys like a, uh, a fresh pork shank to throw on the grill and then sit down with a knife and fork. Why? Because it would be like trying to eat a tire. It'd be rough. There's a reason why pork shanks are traditionally cured and smoked and then used as an ingredient as opposed to a food, which let me clarify that for a minute. Uh, a lot of times I'll talk about things in terms of like, oh, do you eat this thing? Like, is the thing itself food or is it an ingredient? Like, it, does it inform the flavor or the texture or the nutrition of something else? You know, like uh, technically, I mean, all of the stuff is food, right? It's all edible. But you never sit down to a nice big bowl of peppercorns, right? Because peppercorns are an ingredient. They are edible, but we want them for the flavor that they give to other things. On the other hand, you know, tomatoes, you just eat them. Yes, they have flavor. Yes, that flavor can flavor something else. You can have this whole like top to bottom uh, tomato infused dish that is just, you know, it tastes like tomato every which way. But at the end of the day, you're just eating the tomatoes. You're eating them because they are food themselves. So pork shanks, when they're cured and smoked, that is to me like an ingredient because that's something you're going to put into um, a soup or a braise or something like that. And you're hoping that all that smoky, sweet, salty, 
umami flavor is going to be leached out of the pork shank and, and, and imbued into the into the thing they're eating, whether it's a, a pot of greens or beans or cassoulet or uh, ham and bean soup or whatever. Now, that long, slow cooking process will, will break down the connective tissue and the, and the muscle fibers enough that the meat of the shank will be completely edible. I mean, if you throw that into a pot of ham and bean soup, it will produce a lot of ham in the soup that you can consume, but that is just like a byproduct or a side effect of the ingredient nature of a pork shank. This case, in this dish, in this case, I guess, um, we are going to use the pork shank as food, but we just have to process the heck out of it to make it uh, palatable, all right? So what we're gonna do first, you know, well, first you have to get a pork shank. Now, I just got three whole legs, you know, fresh, they're called fresh hams. You know, it's the hind leg of a pig. I got three of them uncured because I'm making my holiday hams and all that kind of stuff. And I got them with the shank and trotter on. So all I had to do is cut off that lower leg and go to town. You can get pork shanks, uncured, fresh pork shanks in the grocery store. Sometimes, depending on the grocery store, you know, good luck. If you can't find them, you can use pork shoulder. You stay away from pork loin. That is just, it, there's no point in doing it with pork loin. Pork loin is too regular and consistent of a muscle, but a pork shoulder be fine. And it's cheap. You know, shanks should be cheaper, but who knows? And they might be trendy now. Who knows? So anyway, what we're going to do is we carve off all of the, the meat uh, from those shanks, clean those bones up and get that off. Then we're going to cut it into roughly one inch cubes or one inch chunks with this now, now with higgs in general their fat is very very flavorful and delicate it melts at a relatively low temperature so a lot of times with pork it's like yeah you want to keep as much of that fat involved as possible because it's going to be delicious with this one it's not quite as important the fat isn't going to do a whole lot for flavoring the the dish um it's going to, a lot of it will just sort of melt away and won't even make it to the finished dish. So whenever you're cutting these up, if you want to, you can trim away um, a decent amount of that surface fat because you don't actually need it. Like it would be better to not have it there at all, but you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to excise it from the meat because like I said, it, there there's going to be a step where a lot of that fat is going to just disappear on us anyway. Okay. So you get that all, get all that meat cut off of there and uh, cut it up into like one inch cubes, trim it up, get as much of that fat off as possible. And you're going to have this little, you know, pile of fairly ruby red and bright milky white <laughs> meat, you know, meat and fat contrast, tendon, stuff like that. But you can tell that this would be, this would be very tough if you were just to cook it and eat it as it is. This is, I guess technically a cured product, but unlike things like with the uh, duck confit or our bacon, we're not, we're not doing an equilibrium cure where we're trying to get like just the right amount of salt in there. No, what we're going to do is we're going to brute force cure this flash cure it, uh, salt box cure. And it's only going to take 24 hours. Okay. So what I used was this little plastic like Tupperware container. And I put a layer of kosher salt in the bottom. And it is very important for this that you use kosher salt. 
or otherwise just regular, like just salt, not iodized salt. You don't want that. Um, and if you can avoid sea salt or salt that has impurities visible in it, like, you know, like if the salt has a color to it, like if it's pink or gray, or if there's little flecks of brown minerals in there, you don't want that. You want like bright, white, snowy, coarse grain, kosher salt. The reason for that is that you don't want any impurities to cause discoloration or to magnify any off flavors. So you don't want to get like metallic flavors or minerally flavors in there. So you just want plain salt. So I put a layer of that down in the, um, in the Tupperware container and then put a layer of my pork down in there and then sprinkle, 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 pour, pour a generous amount of salt. You want maybe like a quarter of an inch to a half inch salt layers between each layer of pork. And now obviously check the show notes, look at the imager album. You'll see what I'm doing here. Like I, I have images of this where we're basically encasing every piece of pork in an ungodly amount of salt. And we're just packing it in there, refrigerating it for 24 hours. That is going to be enough time. That salt is going to shock that pork. What it's going to do is it's going to draw out a lot of liquid from that muscle very quickly. And it's going to concentrate the porky flavor and the, and the color is going to transform to almost like a purple or mauve maroon. I was trying to think of what the M word was for the, for the shade of red that I'm looking for here. Maroon, purplish, like really dark because you're sucking out the water content while leaving in like the myoglobin. And um, these are really dense muscle fibers anyway. So by drawing moisture out, you're kind of just making them more compact and more concentrated. Yeah. So after 24 hours, you take this, you know, essentially this container of salt and pork out and you can, you can dump it into a colander or a strainer or a, a sieve or something like that. And just, you know, rinse it with cold tap water. We don't have to worry about like, we don't have to like wash it. We'd have to worry about getting all the salt off of it. We just don't want there to be a large quantity of salty sludge still mixed in with this pork. We just want it to be basically fresh. It's going to feel denser. You know, whenever you cut that meat off of the, off of the bones to begin with, it's going to be spongy and, and, and squishy, just like fresh pork would be. Once it comes out of the salt the following day, uh, it's going to be a little springier, rubbery, rubbery would be a word that I would use to describe that. And that's okay. Cause it's going to get, it's going to get real soft and palatable eventually. <laughs> so once you get that out of the salt and it's rinsed and drained, you want to put that into a high sided pot. Now, how high? Uh, it doesn't have to be that high. <laughs> Honestly, it, you don't have to put this into like a, 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 a Abraham Lincoln's hat or anything like that. You just, you, you want to put it into a vessel that we can cook, we can boil on the stove where we can have enough liquid that'll cover all of the pork. Uh, so using a high sided pot is prudent in this case. So what we're going to do is we're get all that pork into this high sided pot. We're going to add two cups of dry white wine. What did I use? Uh, Sauvignon Blanc, I think. Yes. Usually I'll use like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Grigio or a Pinot Grigio, something like that. Yeah. You want it to be like bright, citrusy, acidic, dry, 
clear, crisp, like all the words that they put on the label. You'll find something. I've got, it was a bottle of Chateau Saint-Michel. It's like $9 or whatever. And that'll work great. Two cups of that in there. And then as much water as you need to ensure that the pork is covered with, you know, a half inch to an inch water above the pile of pork that you have in the pot. To that, add, you know, four, five bay leaves. If you have, or if you have access to, or you can get um, fresh bay leaves, those would be great. I used fresh bay leaves later on in the recipe for this part, for the uh, for the simmering. I used you know, regular dry bay leaves that you get you know, from the spice aisle at the grocery store. That'll work fine. They don't have to be fresh now. If like it's like if you if you can get fresh bay leaves, get some because you'll need them later. But you don't have to use exclusively fresh bay leaves for the whole uh, for the whole process. Okay. Anyway, so you have your porks is in the, in the pot with white wine, water, bay leaf. Bring that up to a simmer. You know you don't have to blast it. You know just get it to where it's starting to to bubble a little bit. Turn it down to where it'll maintain a, a slow, you know, a gentle simmer, a gentle boil and cover it and let that sit there doing its thing for at least four hours. Four hours is like the sweet spot. I think, I believe the recipe that I looked at was four to six hours. I've been doing this for, God, eight years now. So like I never, I don't even like look at the recipe anymore. Um, but I think it says four to six hours. Four hours has always been fine, but you're going to let that simmer for four hours. Now, once that simmering is done, the way that you're supposed to do this is kill the heat and let that sit overnight and come down to room temperature um, in the liquor that it has created. And you say like, well, is that a good idea to leave a pot of pork and water on the stove overnight to get down to room temperature? I'm going to say that the health department would frown upon that if that was the, uh, the workflow for producing this in like a restaurant. But from a logical standpoint, you should be okay. Couple reasons. Number one, you've already impeded the growth of a lot of bacterias by doing that flash cure. That the, the, the quantity of salt that has been applied to this pork is going to kill a lot of microbial life very quickly because it is, it is such a voluminous amount of salt. Secondly, what you have in that pot should be slightly acidic because you did add the, the wine to it. I've never actually done a pH reading, so I can't say how acidic it is. Chances are it's not below 5.3 pH, which would be sufficient to create like a shelf-stable product, but it will help. It is like a backup to the salt for preventing the growth of bacteria. But then third, you've just simmered this, you know, obviously uh, at above 212 degrees for at least four hours. That is going to be a sterilizing environment, right? That's going to kill anything that was growing in there. And if you've left it covered and you didn't open it, like if you turned the heat off and left the lid on, then nothing should be able to get in there while it's cooling down to reinfect um, what you have there. Now, if you don't want to take that chance, that's fine. You can take that whole pot and you can put it in the fridge, leave it in there overnight, okay? The following day, or once it has come down and it's chilled, it's basically either at, either at room temperature or at refrigerator temperature, bring it out, open it up. Now, this is not going to smell appetizing at this point. 
And while you're simmering it on the stove, it's also not going to smell great. I mean, it's not going to smell bad, but it's going to smell like pork boiling with wine. And it has a fairly distinct aroma. I mean, it, it is going to smell like boiling wine and funky pork because that's what it is, right? Um, but it's okay. It's going to get a lot better. <laughs> so I still want you to open it up and be like, oh my God, is this what this is supposed to be like? Yeah, this is, you're, you're fine. You're, you're, this hasn't been complicated up until this point. So we'll be good. So what you want to do at this point, the liquid is going to be pretty thick. Now, maybe it'll still be liquid. Maybe it will gelatinize. You know, maybe it'll basically be pork suspended in a, a fatty wine tinged jello possibly um you can if we use a ladle and scoop off you know the fat cap that will have hardened on the top of this uh this pot and get rid of that and then with your hands just go through and pull out all the chunks of pork and put them into you can put them into a, a strainer suspended over a bowl or something like that but get it out get it into there and then all the, whatever liquid is left in the pot, you can discard that. We don't need that at all. We got to do a little bit of manual processing of the pork because we, we, we're going for a certain texture as well as a certain flavor here. So, you know, I put down a cutting board and I dumped all these pork chunks <laughs> onto the cutting board and using, you know, uh, either like a boating knife or a long skinny knife or even just your fingers you can kind of separate the muscle fibers and flake it a little bit. Now we don't want to completely pulverize this into like a, a sloppy Joe sort of consistency. What we just want to do is we want to separate some of those muscle fibers and I'm sorry, um, separate some of those muscle fibers and sort of just fluff up these balls of pork, uh, kind of like uh, the way you would tease out uh, a cotton ball to make it bigger and more voluminous. So we're going to do that with each one of those pieces. It's kind of, just kind of uh, shredded a little bit, but leave it all kind of bound together. Put that into a, into a bowl for to hold for as a holding container. While you're doing this, if you're manipulating this with your hands, if there are chunks of fat still stuck to the pork, you can kind of like push those off and discard them or set them aside. Uh, so you can be picky and sort of go through and clean the pork a little bit and remove as much of the fat as you can with your fingers during this step. Next, next, we want some canning jars. I used half pint jars. You could use pints. You probably don't want to use quarts because then you're going to end up with a very large container of something that you don't need a whole lot of. Half pint or pint would be best. You can, you know, wash those in boiling water or run them through a, a boil cycle in your canner if you would like just to sterilize them initially. Um, make sure they're nice and clean. And with a spoon, you know, spoon in a bunch of this pork into each one of them. Don't pack it in there. We want, we want there to be space. We want it to be loosely packed into these jars. And then if you were able to get fresh bay leaves, this is where you want to use the fresh bay leaves. Slide it vertically down. Again, look at the pictures. I've got pictures of these. I don't, I'm trying to describe it, but you're going to slide that bay leaf um, between the pork and the glass so that it's kind of showing there. It's, kind of, it's not as intricate as fancy pack. You know, whenever, if you've ever seen fancy pack, like canned vegetables, beautiful. I mean, just absolutely stunning 
ways of arranging vegetables in the can in the jars before canning. Um, we're not going that far, but it is nice. Just have that leaf showing to the world. Um, and then you're going to fill the jar with olive oil until it covers the meat. Now, a long time ago, very similar to like duck confit, this would have been made, would have been packed into either glass jars or earthenware crocks, and it would have had oil poured over it. And then it would probably have been kept in like a root cellar, you know, uh, underground, probably stays at like 55 to 60 degrees. It's cool, but it's not refrigerated. And, you know, the, the oil would prevent oxidation because it's going to create like this barrier where oxygen won't break through the, uh, the surface of the oil and get into the pork itself. But we're not going to hot water bath can these. We're not going to process them. We're not going to uh, pressure can them or anything like that. So for the sake of modern sterile food practices, I'm going to tell you, these are not shelf stable. You don't want to just put these in your pantry or your larder. Once these are all packaged up, you want to keep them in the refrigerator. Okay. Because it is an anaerobic and it is an anaerobic environment with the olive oil in there. And we did not use nitrates or nitrites in the curing. So we don't have like that, that chemical prophylactic against botulism and botulism grows in uh, low acid anaerobic environments. And like I said, I don't believe that the, the wine addition would be sufficient amounts of acid to drop the pH to a safe zone. And since we're not heat treating the, the jars when they're done, uh, we're not doing anything that would be um, modern canning standards for shelf-stable products. So once you fill those with olive oil, you put put a put a lid on, screw a ring on, and then those go into the refrigerator. What I like to do is I like to fill them with the oil and let them sit on the counter for a little while so that the oil will permeate, not permeate, will uh, penetrate any voids and will percolate down and, and fill in any gaps in there. And then after, you know, a couple of minutes, you go back and, you know, top them up uh, with a little bit more olive oil until, until that oil level stops dropping, you know, below the, the level of the, the meat at the top. Put a lid on, put a, a ring on, screw those down, and then into the refrigerator. And uh, ideally, ideally, you let those rest in they use the word ripen that always sounds kind of gross when you talk about potted meats but you're gonna allow that to ripen for seven to 14 days that's like the sweet spot but prior to that you know you put them in the fridge use them the next day you can basically use the meat in those jars the same way you would tuna canned in oil like tuna that's been packed in a light oil or something like that um you could, you could take it out and serve it in a bowl where you just, you know, put it on crackers or whatever. My favorite thing to do is to make a, a salad of the Tano di Miali, like you would a tuna salad. So what I do is I drain that oil off, you know, in a little strainer or something like that. Get the, as much of the oil gone. And I don't want, I don't want to have, you know, three tablespoons of meat and a half a cup of olive oil. That's a little too much. So I like to drain the oil off and then finely dice red onion and chop some celery greens, uh, the leaves, celery leaves. So you get a stalk of celery, just the leaves, chop those up real fine with the uh, red onion, mix it all together with the pork. And then, you know, a couple tablespoons of mayonnaise, 
to uh, create like essentially like tuna salad, but with this pork. And then, you know, we'll do that with charcuterie boards where you just sort of spread that on a cracker or on a bagel. I mean, you could even, I, I might even make like a tonneau salad sandwich with some bread and butter pickles because, you know, it's getting into the middle of mud season and I need to, I need to entertain myself somehow. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's really good. It's, it's fantastic. You check out those pictures, you see that, like the texture, the texture is, is very similar to canned tuna. The flavor is salty with like a, there's like a bright undertone from, from the wine, from the bay. I mean, bay, bay leaf tastes citrusy and fresh and bright and crisp and delicious. And it's just, it's fantastic. It, it's amazing. And, and you get to tell people what it is. They're like, oh, what's this, uh, what's this delightful salad that we have here? It's like, oh, it's a tonno di miale. They're like, wow, you must be very smart. <laughs> Even though, I mean, you could also just say, oh, that's a tuna pork. And they'd be like, that sounds gross. No, but that's the thing. It's like, you can use, you can use the, the true to form name and it sounds exotic and romantic and delicious. And, and it, it sounds fitting it has a name fitting to its flavor because the flavor is fantastic. It's like, wow, this is such a simple knockoff of what is otherwise a very simple product. And this is so much better. Like I would take this over actual tuna any day of the week. So that's Tano Dimiale. Check out the uh, show notes. Um, let's see, what will we have in there? We'll have the link to the Imager album. We'll have the, the recipe. I mean, look, when you talk about recipe here, well, we got pork shank salt, bay leaf, wine, water, olive oil. It's all normal stuff. So we don't have to have any links to special equipment or special ingredients. We won't have any of that this week. Uh, just sort of a straightforward, the process, um, the ingredients and the pictures and that's it. But like, seriously, even if, if, if you ever end up where you just have pork shanks that haven't been cured, like haven't been smoked or anything, um, Definitely, definitely give this a shot. Otherwise, it's totally worth going out to you know buy a couple of shanks, or like I said, you can use pork shoulder if you want to. You can use a Boston butt. You can use a picnic ham. You can use whatever because by the time it goes through the 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 flash curing and the simmering for four hours, the texture is going to be very um, uniform. You know whether it is from the shoulder, the leg, uh, you know. The ribs, doesn't matter. As long as you got some good pork in there, you're going to have a good product. All right? All right, we'll talk to you next week.